feelings for everybody in here that I want to say thank you again because it's been a real nice treat. Um, Charles Mickey filled in for me last week. Charles is someone I co-taught with 25 to 30 years ago in the college ministry in Lubbock, Texas when I was in law school, so I guess 25 years ago at Texas Tech. And uh, I filled in for him occasionally preaching, but it's my first time to ever have him fill in for me. And uh, those of you who did not get to hear his lesson should be on the website shortly. And I understand from everybody it was fantastic. And uh, I want to thank him publicly, even though he's not here. Um, Edward Fudge got very upset that Charles got to fill in because <laughs> it's normally Edward's job. I found out from Edward. I said, well, you know Charles, don't you? He says, yes, we were in graduate school together at Abilene Christian University. So it's, uh, it's you know kind of all in the family. Um, this for some, oh, I know why this is. Uh, Jeff Shreve's birthday was Friday, and he and Debbie have gone out of town for the weekend, so I get to preach for him tonight at the First Baptist Church Texarkana, whatever it's called. I know where it's located. So I uh, <laughs> don't know the name, but I can get there. Got to be there by 515. Um, but I would appreciate a, a prayer or two about that, if you all think about it. And then Mike and Melvin Moriarty, dear friends of ours and class members, uh, uh, have family, and Hilbereth, who I think may even be here, who's been diagnosed with lung cancer. She is here. And thank you for being here. And we're, uh, 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 the, we were introducing you without that diagnosis going along with it. But if we could pause for a minute, I'd like to pray for Anne and her family. And our God, for thousands of years, you've watched your creation come and go. Lord, you have always held us in the palm of your hand. We come and go on this earth, Lord, we never come and go from your sight. We never come and go from your eternity. And you have a number on all of our days, and we don't know what they are. You bring us through sickness, you bring us through health. You offer healing that doctors don't offer. You offer healing that doctors do through the rules you have set up on earth. And we don't understand all of those complexities, and I know Anne and the family do not right now either. It's impossible to. But Lord, the certainty that you are there, I pray will be their strength. I pray it will be all of our strengths. I pray it will be Kay's strength while she and her family go through the loss of her brother. I pray it will be the strength of all those Howard prayed for. Lord, we all need to know that you are there for us. And in that knowledge we find comfort and we say thank you. Is Christ. Amen. Okay. And with that, let us begin class. We are talking about John. Uh-oh. What? No. That's an airplane. Uh, see above. Oh, you're going to do the light trick now? Okay. We're going to do a light trick. On. Off. Still off? In Genesis, God said, let there be light. But before he said it, there was darkness over the face of the deep. And that's actually relevant for today's class. If I had thought to put it up at the start, we could have included it in the, in the light trick. Are we ready? Sort of? Kind of? We're going to go? Go. If we lose the light, there'll be a voice in the darkness. 
<laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. Um, okay, we're doing John. Now, what you may be saying as we're doing John is, why are we doing John? We did Matthew, we did Mark. We're missing something here. Because it goes Matthew, Mark. Oh, aren't you sharp this morning? And then John. The reason we're doing John is because Luke wrote two books. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. And I want to do both of his books together because I think he wrote them to go together. I think the only reason it took two books to do it is because the scrolls were 30 feet long and he ran out of scroll right at the end of Luke. So he started his next scroll, which became Acts. The early church put the Bible together in the order it's in because they tried to do it with the Gospels first. And then the Gospels were put in the order in which the church thought they had been written time-wise. So the net effect of that was to separate Luke from Acts with John in the middle. Doesn't seem fair to me right now, so we're going to put Luke and Acts back together. We're going to deal with the Gospels out of chronological order. Because we're going to spend some time in John. We're going to, we're going to dwell in John for a while. John is a phenomenal gospel. This kind of Sunday morning, I had so much fun preparing for class today. Because there are different classes that meet different needs. I will never ask you to raise your hand on this. Some classes, don't some of you find boring? Do not raise your hand. <laughs> But some of you have got to find some of these boring. Y'all are just nice and need a place to sleep while your kids are in Sunday school. So you come here. Then other classes, some of you find boring, which the first group of bored people found invigorating. And, and different people sort of have different kind of classes. And it's real interesting to me because some of you come up to me. And some of you come up and say, now that's the way you ought to be teaching. And then I don't see you again until I teach another class like that. And then you come back to me and say, now, it's been a while, but that's the way you ought to be teaching. But the Sundays, you all don't come up to me and say that. Other groups of people come up to me and say, well, thank goodness you didn't teach like you did last Sunday. That's the way you're supposed to be teaching. This is the stuff I'm interested in. This Sunday, I teach the stuff I like. So I've been really excited about class. I'm not going to be bored up here. We're dealing with John, and we're going to deal with John for some time. John is not a synoptic gospel. If you've been in here the last two weeks, that's a word we've dealt with, the synoptic word. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptics because they view the gospel story with much of the same stories and words and phrases and information. John's not. John's just off here all by himself. It's his own. When John wrote his gospel, I believe, and most conservative scholars would readily agree, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written. That's why John's gospel is last in the order of the gospels. The early church believed Matthew written first, then Mark, then Luke, and then John. John probably had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if not at his disposal, at least readily known. So when John sits to write his gospel, he doesn't just repeat the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John comes in with a whole different approach and a whole different load of information. And it's fascinating to understand why. Oh, yeah, I already said that. We're allowing Luke and Acts to go together by taking John first. One other thing I've got to warn you about. In Mark, I left some unfinished business. But it won't take a whole class time, so I'm going to roll it into a John lesson later on. The last half of Mark chapter 16... Um, uh, always gets footnoted. Some Bibles even put the whole text in a footnote and say it didn't belong in the original. We're going to look at that textual problem 
when we look at a similar problem in John about Jesus and, the, and a woman. So all of that's still to come. Background information. Who wrote the Gospel of John? Guess. John! <laughs> that's a pretty good guess. Um, John doesn't say specifically he wrote it, but he gives a pretty good indication uh, within the book, and we'll look at that as we get to some of those passages. But uh, John was written, and the early church fathers all agree, uh, was written by John. When did he write it? The Apostle John wrote it probably 85 to 90 A.D. Now, 67 to 70 A.D., Rome came into Jerusalem and wiped out Judaism to the best of its ability. Okay? A lot of the Jews in in Jerusalem were Christians. But it became time to leave Jerusalem when the Romans were coming in to wipe out Jews. Because the Romans, they'd look at you Jewish, whether you said you were a Jewish Christian or just a Jewish Jewish, didn't matter to them. You were getting wiped out too, or at least persecuted, or at least in trouble. So a lot of the church fled Jerusalem. And history teaches us, not the Bible, but history good, valid history, teaches us that John left then, the Apostle John. And the Apostle John went to Ephesus to settle. And uh, Paul had started the church in Ephesus, and we'll read about that when we get to Acts. But Ephesus was a thriving center, and that's where the Apostle John went. And he was in Ephesus when he wrote uh, the book. Now, if we were to look at a map of the Mediterranean world, and this is today's Mediterranean world, uh, the names of the countries have changed, but the land's basically the same. This is Israel right here, and we've got Jerusalem. This is Egypt down in the lower right. We have that Saudi Peninsula here, and we have Iraq, uh, Syria, Jordan is over here, Lebanon is up there. This is Turkey. Istanbul is right up here. Um, this is Greece. If any of you saw the movie with Brad Pitt, uh, the Troy thing, anybody see that? Yeah, enough of you. Okay, that was happening right over in this area of Turkey, where Greece and all was going on. Um, Ephesus was, is, is, or was, it's dead now. It's a dead city. It existed for a long, long time. Right here. It's about an hour and a half or two-hour drive south of, you can't see that? Okay, okay, well, look, it's a laser thing. Can you see that? There's a red dot? Okay. That. All right, look, red dot's on Turkey. We're sliding left, going to the coast. Boom, right there. You see it? Okay, we need some ophthalmology care in this class. Let's just hypothesize you were able to see the red dot on Turkey. You'd go to the left about a foot and a half. And when you got straight to the coast, actually, if you were going from the bottom of the T on Turkey straight to the coast, you'd hit Izmir, for what it's worth, a great town. And then you go south of Izmir, just about an inch to the coast, and that's where Ephesus is. Ephesus, there was this river called the Meander River. We get the word meandering from it. The river went like this, and because it went like this, it would deposit silt along the way. Ephesus was at the mouth of the Meander River. But the Meander River is bringing all this silt. So the port of Ephesus every 20 years would have to move further south. And Ephesus as a city started here, but over hundreds of years kept move, building out this way. It is one of the most fascinating tourist places to ever go. Um, uh, um, absolutely an incredible place. But 
Uh, after a while, they got tired of moving the port, so they just closed the city down after a thousand years, and, and it w got covered over with silt. And so all the silt's been pulled out, and you can go there now, and you can still see the ruts in the road from the chariots. You can see the community urinals that they had at the corner across from the library, which is still a two-story building. It's absolutely phenomenal um, um, remains at, at Ephesus, well worth going to see. They've reconstructed some of the houses. And because it's in Turkey, did you ever see Midnight Express? Okay, in Turkey, if anything ever, if you ever like take out drugs, they send you to prison for life. Okay, it's, it's a horrible movie. Well, the only thing worse than a drug offense is taking an antiquity out of Turkey. So if you like chip something off of one of these buildings and stick it in your pocket and they find out, you're dead. Okay, I mean, you're just going to spend eternity in a Turkish prison, which is not comfortable. What that means is they don't have any security. So you get to walk right around these ruins. You can touch these things. It's phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, so this is where the Apostle John goes. And it's a huge city at the time. had been there already for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, uh, John goes there. Now, one of the fun things about the book of John is the oldest fragment we have of any part of the New Testament. The oldest actual document is a piece of papyrus. Papyrus is, um, we get the word paper from it. Okay? Papyrus is a, comes from a reed that was grown in Egypt. And what they would do is they would cut that reed and they'd smash it real flat. And then they'd take another piece and cut it and smash it real flat. And they would take one that they'd flattened this way and one that they had flattened this way, cross grain, and they'd mat them together. And that's early paper. It comes from papyrus. Okay? We have a papyrus fragment that dates, and it's easy to date. There's not really any question about it. It dates around 135. Maybe it's 10 years earlier. Maybe it's 10 years later. But somewhere around 130 to 135 A.D. Think about it. That's 40 years after John wrote his gospel. Just 40 years later. And this is in the John Rylands Library in Manchester, England. If you ever have a chance to go to Manchester. And I put a copy of it in your, your sheet, uh, in, your, in your paper. You've actually, you've got two of them because there's the front and the back. They wrote on both sides of the papyrus. And it is, uh, uh, it, it's really something. P please understand, this was discovered or uncovered around uh, the 1940s, 30s or 40s. I don't remember exactly, but something in that range. And it's so interesting because the Gospel of John is such a phenomenal, wonderful gospel. I'm going to show you that in a minute. That Germ smart German theologians in the 1800s figured out it had to be written 200 A.D., and all these wonderful theologians who just were so proud and pompous in their day, we still have their writings where they talk about how there's no way the church was dealing with these issues and no one could have thought Christianity through this way. And there's no way you could have this developed view of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit uh, in the early church. This obviously is written two or 300 A.D. by da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Then all of a sudden, they're washed away with the discovery of this fragment that shows the Gospel of John written in Ephesus has already made it all the way to Egypt by 135. It's an incredible story. But this is uh, the, the front of that fragment. And it's from John 18, verses 31 through 33, which is where Pilate uh, is talking to the Jews about Jesus. 
And uh, since we don't have a working highlighter, I have underlined in yellow. Uh, for those of you who may have uh, some knowledge of Greek, and the Greek letters were written a little differently in this time period, which is one of the ways we're able to date the fragment. But um, um, that, in Greek, is, is O-U-D, that's the delta, O-U-D-E-N-A. See, and you wonder how we get that funny-looking A on a typewriter. It looks like the old Greek A, doesn't it? Okay, I've just, there, it's come back. And then, this is I-N-A, and then O, and that's an L. Like a low, like that's the start of the word logos. The word logos would continue if it had been there. Hudena hene ho logos is how that would read, which means no right. And this is the Jews saying, we have no right to kill Jesus uh, under Jewish law. And there would actually, in our text, be a period there. But the early church didn't divide up the words, so we don't have a period. Greek didn't. And this, right here, that I, is the start of verse 32. In verse 32, hina means so that, or in order that, ho, the, and then el, logos, the word. And you can follow that along. I, this is there. This is 135. We've got it. You can look at it. You can go to a museum and look at it. It's phenomenal. And so this is something that means, not that my pointer's worth anything, but, okay, Philip, we need batteries. Um, this is something that means that uh, uh, the Gospel of John had made it from Turkey all the way down into Egypt in the 130s. That's, uh, that's incredible. That's incredible. Clearly an early gospel. Now, purpose of John. Why did John write this gospel? If Matthew, Mark, and Luke are already out there, why write another gospel? What was John's purpose as he's in Ephesus in writing this gospel? Well, John tells us. In John 20, 31, John says, these signs... The, the signs that he's written about in the gospel. He says, I could have written books and books and books of all that Jesus did, but these I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Mount for a little Greek lesson here. Believe. The word believe in the Greek is in the present tense. It's really hard for translators to command that as they translate their Bible. But, but John is not saying, you're an unbeliever, so I'm writing these things so that you can move from unbelief to belief. It kind of reads that way in the English, doesn't it? But that's not the sense of what's being conveyed. John is writing to people who already believe. And the present tense, the power of that in the Greek is, it's so you can continue to be what you are right now. So if we were going to, to take that present tense, we would want to insert maybe to help it make sense to us. These are written that you may continue to believe. The church was persecuted early. And John is writing not to first generation Christians. By the time John's writing this in 8590, it's the children and the grandchildren of the people who were alive at the time of Jesus. John was the last of the apostles to die. He wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, at the end of his life. So John is from the island of Patmos, by the way, which, if we could go back to our map, 
um, is right here off of Turkey. There was Ephesus. If you went all the way over to the coast, you go down, you got that big island, then you got the little island there. Right in there, right in there is the island. That's the island of Rhodes. That's the island of Patmos, where John wrote uh, the, the Revelation. And we've got some pictures from there that are going to blow you away when we get to study the book of Revelation because the island's got two bays, one facing east and one facing west. One is shaped just like the Greek alpha and the other just like the Greek omega. And uh, it's, it's, it, there's some mind-boggling things about the book of Revelation when you see the island of Patmos. But anyway, so John is writing these to second and third generation Christians so that they could, those Christians could continue to believe, could persist in their faith, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the purpose. Confirm people in their faith that Jesus was Messiah. Now, who did he write it to? Well, he doesn't really say because it's an open gospel. It's to all who would have ears to hear. But we can obviously know it went to the people of Ephesus. We can obviously know it went beyond Ephesus. We've got copies of it in Egypt. Heavens, it's made it into our Bible. In the Diatessaron, which was written about 150 A.D., there are quotations from it and references to it. It was written to Greeks and it was written to Hebrews, both. And this is where we get to spend some time this morning as we just sort of do an overview. This is kind of an overview of John. Um, written to Greeks and Hebrews. Before I get into how we know that, let's talk about some of the uniqueness of John's gospel. Since it's not a synoptic, it's very different. First of all, it's different in that it's what, what I call, and, and I don't think I made this up, I think other people call it a theological gospel. Now this is brand new for us in this class. Let's pause for a minute and think about it. We've been studying the Bible since February 12th of last year. Lewis is good at dates, Michelle told me. Um, different kind of date there, though. Uh, since February 12th of last year, and this is really our first theology book. We've had history books. We've had poetic books with poems. We've had wisdom books that talk about wisdom. We've had prophetic books that talk about prophecy. We've had historical gospels. But John is not just a historical gospel. It's what's called a theological gospel. This is the reason that German scholars in the 1800s thought that John must have been written much later. The idea that this developed theology could have been there at the time of the Apostle John seems far-fetched to the German mindset uh, of, of little faith in the 1800s. But it's very theological. See, when you think about it, it's being written to second and third generation Christians. It's not just reciting the stories of Jesus. It's trying to teach theology. Theology comes from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and logos, which means word or reason or logic or study. In fact, the word logic, L-O-G, comes straight from logos, L-O-G. So theology means the study of God. John is a theological gospel in that John doesn't just recount stories about what Jesus did, but John answers questions of who Jesus really was. Why did Jesus really do what he did? How is God do, about doing his work? These are theological questions. We'll get into a lot more theology books as we get to Paul, because almost all of Paul's writings are half theology and half practical. 
He'll write the first half theology and the second half practical. But this is a theological gospel where it's not just stories being recounted, but it's theological ideas being explained. And it's tremendous, absolutely tremendous. John's also unique because John uses certain words. And I wish we'd hit John before DeMond started his First John series. But when you read First John, it's written by the same John. And these same words echo in First John. Some of these same words echo in Revelation. But John uses the same words over and over and over in his book that really no other gospel writer uses. You can tell that he'd been preaching for all of his life. You know, 30, 40, 50 years at the time he's writing this. John's, I think, like in his 90s, 80s or 90s when he dies. Lives a long time. So John uses words. He uses the word belief 98 times in this gospel. The key theme in the gospel. You know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him. That's one of 98 times. It's over and over and over. The word witness is used over and over and over in his gospel. The word love, the word abide, the word the father, the son, and the counselor are used over and over and over. Counselor Parakletos means someone called alongside to help you. It's the Holy Spirit. And John even says that. He says the counselor is the Holy Spirit. It's another reason the German scholars thought this had to be written late. Nobody had the Trinity back then, but it's there. John uses the word light over and over and over. Life, darkness, abide, glorify, true, real. All of these are John's words. And when you read the Gospel of John, it's fun. Take this list. I put these words in your thing. Sometimes sit down and just read the Gospel of John and circle each one of the time you see these words. And it'll make the book just jump out at you because you'll realize he's using the same words over and over and over for a reason. These are real words to him. These are words have real meaning. Now, let's look at how this is a Greek Gospel for 10 minutes. Let's look at how it's a Hebrew Gospel for 10 minutes, and then we'll be through. So if you'll bear with me. Um... <clears throat> First, the Greek. John 1, 1 is what, and 1, 14 is what we're going to use for our example. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. This is the NIV, and the NIV capitalizes Word. It wouldn't have been capitalized back in the Greek. That's our way of saying it's a person, uh, a proper noun. Okay? Um, in the beginning was the Word. In Greek, it's just the simple Logos. The word, again, logos, was with God. And the word, again, logos, God. Now, if we were Greek students or we wanted to be Greek scholars, we could spend easily an hour or two or three hours in this because the Greek in this is so beautiful in, in some of the messages that it teaches. Um, but we're not going to do that. Instead, we're just going to pull out Logos. We're going to look at how Logos is speaking to John's Greek audience. Okay? Logos is translated word. But as I told you before, we get all sorts of things from it that give us a really good perspective. Um, the Greek Logos, O-G-O-S, get um, logic, all of our ology endings, theology, um, 
biology, which bios is the Greek word for life. Biology is the study of living things, life. Geology, geos is the Greek word for earth. Geology is the study of earth. Make sense? Um, logistics, all sorts of words from this, but what logos means in the Greek is word. Now, I asked my son this morning over breakfast, I said, did you take philosophy at college this year? He said, yes. I said, what uh, philosophy courses? He said, ancient and modern. I said, in ancient philosophy, did they teach you about Heraclitus? And he said, yes, they did. Isn't he the guy who said you never step in the same river twice? I said, that's who he is. That's who he is. Heraclitus was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, who lived about 500 B.C., and you'll never guess what town he lived in. He was from Ephesus. Real handy for the Apostle John when he's writing this. So one of the hometown boys, Heraclitus. Heraclitus is quoted by Plato in the Crystallus uh, book. In Crystallus, Plato says, Heraclitus, you know. Now, of course, Heraclitus is dead, but Plato's writing in the present tense. Heraclitus, you know, says that everything moves on and nothing is at rest. And comparing existing things to the flow of a river, he says you could not step into the same river twice. Now, this is a philosophy lesson. So those of you who are bored, just quietly go to sleep. No snoring. Heraclitus says you can never step into the same river twice. Now, I say that to, to some people, and I say, well, of course you can. It's still the river Meander, which would be the river that Heraclitus was most familiar with, being there in Ephesus. No. Even the river meander changes because you can look at it and the fish are in a different location. The water has moved. Heraclitus didn't understand molecules, but the molecular structure is different. We know that now. You could never truly step into the identical exact same river twice because everything changes. Everything is in a state of flux. Everything is constantly in motion. Everything, you are a different person right now than you were when you came in here. Your body's decayed some. You've caught up on your sleep. You're more well rested. You have new things in the gray cells in your brain, even if you're not listening. The light show you experienced. You are not the same person you were when you came in. You have changed. This is what Heraclitus built as his philosophy. But it's true that everything changes. Always true. And what can we know? There's one thing that always stays the same. is the rule that everything changes. That rule doesn't change. It can't be, okay, everything used to change, but now everything's the same because everything changes, so the rule had to change. Does that make any sense? So Heraclitus says everything changes except the rule that everything changes. There is some constant in this universe. There is some cohesive force that holds everything together. There is a constant cohesive force that never changes. There is a rule and a principle that never changes, even though everything else does. And do you care to guess what he called that? Love. There is an unchanging constant. 
the Logos. And this philosophy of the Logos was built up by Heraclitus in Ephesus, where John would be writing his gospel. Logos, reason, law. It's also used for ratio in mathematic equations, the same word. Now let's look again at what John says. In the beginning was the Logos, the word, the unchanging constant, the cohesive force that holds the universe together, the one rule that is never going to change. And this Logos, this unchanging constant, this reliable 100% constant there security force that holds the universe together was with God, God. And the mind-blowing part comes in verse 14. And the word, the Logos, the unchanging constant became flesh and dwelt among us. Mind-blowing for multiple reasons to the Greek philosophy mind. It's mind-blowing, number one, because if there's anything you ever wanted to see, it was the Logos. And the idea that the Logos became something real was incredible. But number two, the, 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 the difficulty, the paradigm, the idea, you know, we talk about in our mindset, the idea that Jesus could be fully God and fully human is real difficult for us to juggle and mesh together. For the Greeks, how could you take something that was the Logos, that was unchanging, that was the constant, and put it into the world that's always changing, and a body that's always changing? The miracle of the incarnation is there. While Jesus in the body and stuff, the incarnate Jesus may have changed, who he was, the Logos, remained constant. He was it from the cradle to the tomb to the resurrection to eternity. Jesus never changes. And that Jesus is a constant. And that Jesus is what holds us all together. And that Jesus is what's reliable. The only reliable thing in an unchanging world. Wonderful gospel message to the Greek mindset. Okay. Ten minutes. Hebrew! Forget those Greeks! They all look like Brad Pitt wannabes. Okay? Forget them. Let's get back to the Tanakh, the Jewish scripture. Let's get back to the Torah, the law. Let's find our Hebrew roots. Let's remember that Old Testament we spent a year in in this class. And let's look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You're not a Greek philosopher now. You're a Jewish student. At the feet of the rabbi, and the rabbi says to you, in the beginning was the Word. And you say, I know this, as he starts out, in the beginning. He may be speaking Greek. He may say, in RK, which is the Greek. RK means beginning. What word do we get from RK? Archaeology study of the beginnings of, of uh, our early history. All right, in the beginning, in RK, in the Greek. But you see, even though we're Jews right now, we don't read much Hebrew anymore. It's kind of gone. Do you know what we read for our Old Testament? The Greek Old Testament, because it was translated into Greek. And so when we memorize this scripture, we don't memorize it in the Hebrew, Bareshi, bara Elohim. We memorize it in the Greek. And do you know what the very beginning of our Bible starts with in Greek? NRK, in the beginning. 
John starts his gospel with the same words Genesis 1-1 begins with and the Jewish Bible begins with. So as Jews, we look at this and we say, in the beginning, yes, we know that. In the beginning, God, yes, we know that. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. We know that. That's our Genesis 1 story. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he create it? Spoke it into being with the word. God said, let there be light. God said, let us make man in our image. God said, let the earth bring forth. God said, let the waters be separated. God said, it was, and it was, and it was. So as Hebrews... I have no anything about Heraclitus. We don't have no anything about the Logos. We can read John's Gospel and he is singing the same song to us that he's singing to the Greeks because we're plugged into the Word and God and in the beginning. And then, for the Hebrews, it gets equally mind-blowing to get to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Get mind blown by this because they're reading it in the Greek and they're hearing it in the Greek and they know what a word is that you don't know. Kineo in the Greek. Kineo is translated made his dwelling. Paraskineo, anybody ever gone camping? Did you paraskineo when you went camping? We didn't, because Becky's idea of camping is the Holiday Inn. But I've seen Lewis, and Lewis camps, and he paraskineos with the best of them. Paraskineo means to pitch one's tent or to tabernacle because the tabernacle in the wilderness was a tent. That's right. I mean, the Jews, they're being led out of bondage in Egypt and Moses goes up on the mountain. God says, I want you to build a tent. It's the tabernacle. We're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in there. It's going to have another dividing wall. It's going to have a holy of holies. And then when you get ready to go somewhere, you're going to pull up the tent and when you go, you're going to follow me. I'm going to lead you through clouds or, or fire by night or cloud by day. And then when we stop, we're going to pitch the tent. You're going to periskineo. You're going to tabernacle, build the tabernacle. And then God's Shekinah glory, Exodus tells us, would come down and dwell the tent. Okay? And Moses was allowed to go in there. Not anybody else. Moses would go in there. You and I didn't go in there. Glory was in there. Periskineo, they would tabernacle, they would pitch the tent. Now what John is saying, is John is saying that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the Word that spoke into being, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and verse 14, the Word became flesh and pitched its tent among us. Christ, God incarnate, came down, and it wasn't a little tent that got moved 1,500 years ago through the wilderness with the Jews. 
God Himself pitched His tent and we have beheld His glory. We got in. We got to see. His presence here with us in Jesus Christ. God Himself came and made presence on planet Earth with His people. And glory was there. Shown and we beheld it. Dude, that's pretty mind-boggling. How John communicates to the Jew and Gentile alike, the Jew and the Greek alike. An incredible writing or what? You see how he has taken, and what do you, I mean, the guy's preached for 35, 40 years when he's writing this. And he's got like the Holy Spirit in ways that would make Benny Hinn lust. Okay? I, this guy's got, okay? So, I mean, what do you think about it? The guy's been preaching. He followed the footsteps of Jesus. He was one of the three closest apostles to Jesus. He has lived and experienced and preached. And now he's dictating this gospel. He's preached about these things. He's talked about these things. He's used these words. He's used these concepts. He's taught Greeks. He's taught Hebrews. And he's able to take and weave it together in the theological gospel. And folks, we're going to spend a, a number of weeks in this gospel. We're not here next week. It's July 4th. Uh, following that, I'm set to try uh, uh, two cases out of town. I'll be out of town. Um, Sunday afternoon through Friday night, four to five weeks, okay? But we're not stopping this. I've told the judges and I've told my trial team, I can't leave Houston until after Sunday school. Back. That's in Texarkana and in Detroit. This is such a buzz to me. This is the, this is going to be a study worth coming back for. So bring your friends. This was just the introduction. It's going to be good. Points for home. John, what a gospel. Number two, there is a constant in our world of change. I heard uh, Randy Stonehill sing one time, stop the world, I want to get off. Okay? Sometimes aren't going the way we want them to. He also is the guy who sings, it's a great big stupid world, we're sitting on a dirt clot in outer space. Um, <laughs> there are times where you just feel that way. But there is a constant on this dirt clod that we call home. Name. It's Jesus. He sought you out, came to you, and called you by name to show you his glory and the glory of God, full of grace and truth. He came as a man, even though he's divine, and he came for a reason. That's wonderful news. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the good news that John gives us, that you, through your Spirit, give us in the writings of John. I pray that you will bless our class, bring every person that needs to hear this gospel message to the classes they need to hear. And I pray I won't get in the way of the message, but use me to get the message through. Bless us as we disperse. Please bring us back together safely. We pray in the name of our Lord, our Savior, your glory made flesh and tabernacled with us, the constant behind all that changes. We pray in him. Amen.